Chapter Nineteen of the Promised Land. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. The Promised Land by Mary Anton. Chapter Nineteen: A Kingdom in the Slums. I did not always wait for the Natural History Club to guide me to delectable lands. Some of the happiest days of that happy time I spent with my sister in East Boston. We had a merry time at supper. Moses making clever jokes without cracking a smile himself, and the baby romping in his high chair, eating what wasn't good for him. But the best of the evening came later, when father and baby had gone to bed and the dishes were put away, and there was not a crumb left on the red and white checked tablecloth. Frieda took out her sewing, and I took a book, and the lamp was between us, shining on the table, on the large brown roses on the wall, on the green and brown diamonds of the oil cloth on the floor. On the baby's rattle on a shelf, and on the shining stove in the corner, it was such a pleasant kitchen, such a cosy, friendly room, that when Frida and I were left alone, I was perfectly happy just to sit there. Frida had a beautiful parlor with plush chairs and a velvet carpet and gilt picture frames, but we preferred the homely, homelike kitchen. I read aloud from Longfellow or Whittier or Tennyson, and it was as great a treat to me as it was to Frida. Her attention alone was inspiring. Her delight, her eager questions, doubled the meaning of the lines I read. Poor Frida had little enough time for reading, unless she stole it from the sewing or the baking or the mending. But she was hungry for books, and so grateful when I came to read to her that it made me ashamed to remember all the beautiful things I had and did not share with her. It is true I shared what could be shared. I brought my friends to her. At her wedding were some of the friends of whom I was most proud. Miss Dillingham came, and Mr. Hurd, and the humbler guests stared in admiration at our school teachers and editors. But I had so many delightful things that I could not bring to Frieda—my walks, my dreams, my adventures of all sorts. And yet, when I told her about them, I found that she partook of everything, for she had her talent for vicarious enjoyment, by means of which she entered as an actor into my adventures, was present as a witness at the frolic of my younger life. Or if I narrated things that were beyond her, on account of her narrower experience, she listened with an eager longing to understand that was better than some people's easy comprehension. My world ever rang with good tidings, and she was grateful if I brought her the echo of them to ring again within the four walls of the kitchen that bounded her life. And I, who lived on the heights and walked with the learned, and bathed in the crystal fountains of youth, sometimes climbed the sublimest peak in my sister's humble kitchen. There caught the unfaltering accents of inspiration, and rejoiced in silver pools of untried happiness. The way she reached out for everything fine was shown by her interest in the incomprehensible Latin and French books that I brought. She liked to hear me read my Cicero, pleased by the movement of the sonorous periods. I translated Ovid and Virgil for her, and her pleasure illumined the difficult passages, so that I seldom needed to have recourse to the dictionary. I shall never forget the evening I read to her from the Aeneid, the passage in the fourth book describing the death of Dido. I read the Latin first, and then my own version in English hexameters that I had prepared for a recitation at school. Frida forgot her sewing in her lap and leaned forward in rapt attention. When I was through, there were tears of delight in her eyes, and I was surprised myself at the beauty of the words I had just pronounced. I do not dare to confess how much of my Latin I have forgotten. Lest any of the devoted teachers who taught me should learn the sad truth, 
but I shall always boast of some acquaintance with Virgil, through that scrap of the Aeneid made memorable by my sister's enjoyment of it. Truly my education was not entirely in the hands of the persons who had licenses to teach. My sister's fat baby taught me things about the origin and ultimate destiny of dimples that were not in any of my school books. Mr. Casey of the second floor, who was drunk whenever his wife was sober, gave me an insight into the psychology of the beer mug that would have added to the mental furniture of my most scholarly teacher. The bold-faced girls who passed the evening on the corner, in promiscuous flirtation with the cock-eyed youths of the neighborhood, unconsciously revealed to me the eternal secrets of adolescence. My neighbor of the third floor, who sat on the curbstone with the scabby baby in her bedraggled lap, had things to say about the fine ladies who came in carriages to inspect the public bathhouse across the street that ought to be repeated in the lecture halls of every school of philanthropy. Instruction poured into my brain at such a rate that I could not digest it all at the time. But in later years, when my destiny had led me far from Dover Street, the emphatic moral of those lessons became clear. The memory of my experience on Dover Street became the strength of my convictions, the illumined index of my purpose, the aureola of my happiness. And if I paid for those lessons with days of privation and dread, with nights of tormenting anxiety, I count the price cheap. Who would not go to a little trouble to find out what life is made of? Life in the slums spins busily as a schoolboy's top, and one who has heard its humming never forgets. I look forward to telling, when I get to be a master of language, what I read in the crooked cobblestones when I revisited Dover Street the other day. Dover Street was never really my residence, at least not the whole of it. It happened to be the nook where my bed was made. But I inhabited the city of Boston. In the pearl-misty morning, in the ruby-red evening, I was empress of all I surveyed from the roof of the tenement house. I could point in any direction, and name a friend who would welcome me there. Off towards the northwest, in the direction of Harvard Bridge, which some day I should cross on my way to Radcliffe College, was one of my favorite palaces, whither I resorted every day after school. A low, wide-spreading building, with a dignified granite front it was, flanked on all sides by noble old churches, museums, and schoolhouses, harmoniously disposed around a spacious triangle, called Copley Square. Two thoroughfares that came straight from the green suburbs swept by my palace, one on either side, converged at the apex of the triangle, and pointed off, past the public garden, across the historic common, to the domed state house, sitting on a height. It was my habit to go very slowly up the low, broad steps to the palace entrance, pleasing my eyes with the majestic lines of the building, and lingering to read again the carved inscriptions. Public Library, Built by the People, Free to All. Did I not say it was my palace? Mine, because I was a citizen. Mine, though I was born an alien. Mine, though I lived on Dover Street. My palace. Mine. I loved to lean against a pillar in the entrance hall, watching the people go in and out. Groups of children hushed their chatter at the entrance, and skipped, whispering and giggling in their fists, up the grand stairway, patting the great stone lines at the top, with an eye on the aged policeman down below. Spectacled scholars came slowly down the stairs, loaded with books, heedless of the lofty arches that echoed their steps. Visitors from out of town lingered long in the entrance hall, studying the inscriptions and symbols on the marble floor. And I loved to stand in the midst of all this, and remind myself that I was there, that I had a right to be there. 
that I was at home there. All these eager children, all these fine-browed women, all these scholars going home to write learned books. I and they had this glorious thing in common, this noble treasure-house of learning. It was wonderful to say, This is mine. It was thrilling to say, This is ours. I visited every part of the building that was open to the public. I spent rapt hours studying the Abbey pictures. I repeated to myself lines from Tennyson's poem before the glowing scenes of the Holy Grail. Before the prophets in the gallery above I was mute, but echoes of the Hebrew Psalms I had long forgotten throbbed somewhere in the depths of my consciousness. The Chavanese series around the main staircase I did not enjoy for years. I thought the pictures looked faded, and their symbolism somehow failed to move me at first. Bates Hall was the place where I spent my longest hours in the library. I chose a seat far at one end, so that looking up from my books I would get the full effect of the vast reading-room. I felt the grand spaces under the soaring arches as a personal attribute of my being. The courtyard was my sky-roofed chamber of dreams. Slowly strolling past the endless pillars of the colonnade, the fountain murmured in my ear of all the beautiful things in all the beautiful world. I imagined that I was a Greek of the classic days, treading on sandaled feet through the glistening marble porticoes of Athens. I expected to see, if I looked over my shoulder, a bearded philosopher in a drooping mantle, surrounded by beautiful youths with wreathed locks. Everything I read in school, in Latin or Greek, everything in my history books was real to me here, in this courtyard, set about with stately columns. Here is where I like to remind myself of Polotsk, the better to bring out the wonder of my life. That I who was born in the prison of the Pale should roam at will in the land of freedom was a marvel that it did me good to realize. That I who was brought up to my teens almost without a book should be set down in the midst of all the books that ever were written was a miracle as great as any on record. That an outcast should become a privileged citizen. That a beggar should dwell in a palace. This was a romance more thrilling than poet ever sung. Surely I was rocked in an enchanted cradle. From the public library to the state house is only a step, and I found my way there without a guide. The state house was one of the places I could point to, and say that I had a friend there to welcome me. I do not mean the representative of my district, though I hope he was a worthy man. My friend was no less a man than the Honorable Senator Rowe, from Worcester, whose letters to me— Written under the embossed letterhead of the Senate chamber, I could not help exhibiting to Florence Connolly. How did I come by a senator? Through being a citizen of Boston, of course. To be a citizen of the smallest village in the United States, which maintains a free school and a public library, is to stand in the path of the splendid processions of opportunity. And as Boston has rather better schools, and a rather finer library than some other villages, it comes natural there for children in the slums, to summon gentlemen from the State House to be their personal friends. It is so simple, in Boston, you are a schoolgirl, and your teacher gives you a ticket for the annual historical lecture in the Old South Church on Washington's birthday. You hear a stirring discourse on some subject in your country's history, and you go home with a heart bursting with patriotism. You sit down and write a letter to the speaker who so moved you, telling him how glad you are to be an American— explaining to him, if you happen to be a recently made American, why you love your adopted country so much better than your native land. Perhaps the patriotic lecturer happens to be a senator, and he reads your letter under the vast dome of the state house, 
and it occurs to him that he and his eminent colleagues, and the stately capital, and the glorious flag that floats above it, all gathered on the hill above the common, do his country no greater honor than the outspoken admiration of an ardent young alien. The senator replies to your letter, inviting you to visit him at the State House, and in the renowned chamber where the august business of the State is conducted, you, an obscure child from the slums, and he, a chosen leader of the people, seal a democratic friendship based on the love of a common flag. Even simpler than to meet a senator was it to become acquainted with a man like Edward Everett Hale, the grand old man of Boston the people called him, from the manner of his life among them. He kept open house in every public building in the city. Wherever two citizens met to devise a measure for the public weal, he was a third. Wherever a worthy cause needed a champion, Dr. Hale lifted his mighty voice. At some time or another, his colossal figure towered above an eager multitude from every pulpit in the city, from every lecture platform. And where is the map of Boston that gives the names of the lost alleys and backways, where the great man went in search of the lame in body, who could not join the public assembly, in quest of the maimed in spirit, who feared to show their faces in the open? If all the little children who have sat on Dr. Hale's knee were started in a procession on the state house steps, standing four abreast, there would be a lane of merry faces across the common, out to the public library, over Harvard Bridge, and away beyond to remoter landmarks. That I met Dr. Hale is no wonder. It was as inevitable as that I should be a year older every twelve month. He was a part of Boston, as the salt wave is a part of the sea. I can hardly say whether he came to me or I came to him. We met, and my adopted country took me closer to her breast. A day or two after our first meeting, I called on Dr. Hale, at his invitation. It was only eight o'clock in the morning, you may be sure, because he had risen early to attend to a hundred great affairs, and I had risen early so as to talk with a great man before I went to school. I think we liked each other a little more for the fact that when so many people were still asleep, we were already busy in the interests of citizenship and friendship. We certainly liked each other. I am sure I did not stay more than fifteen minutes, and all that I recall of our conversation was that Dr. Hale asked me a great many questions about Russia, in a manner that made me feel that I was an authority on the subject, and with his great hand in good-bye he gave me a bit of homely advice, namely, that I should never study before breakfast. That was all, but for the rest of the day I moved against a background of grandeur. There was a noble ring to Virgil that day that even my teacher's firm translation had never brought out before. Obscure points in the history lesson were clear to me alone, of the thirty girls in the class, and it happened that the tulips in Copley Square opened that day, and shone in the sun like lighted lamps. Any one could be happy a year on Dover Street, after spending half an hour on Highland Street. I enjoyed so many half-hours in the great man's house, that I do not know how to convey the sense of my remembered happiness. My friend used to keep me in conversation a few minutes, in the famous study that was fit to have been preserved as a shrine, after which he sent me to roam about the house, and explore his library, and take away what books I pleased. Who would feel cramped in a tenement, with such royal privileges as these? Once I brought Dr. Hale a present, a copy of a story of mine that had been printed in a journal, and from his manner of accepting it, you might have thought that I was a princess dispensing gifts from a throne— I wish I had asked him, that last time I talked with him, how it was that he who was so modest made those who walked with him so great. 
Modest as the man was the house in which he lived, a gray old house of a style that New England no longer builds, with a pillared porch curtained by vines, set back in the yard behind the old trees. Whatever cherished flowers glowed in the garden behind the house, the common daisy was encouraged to bloom in front. And was there sun or snow on the ground, the most timid hand could open the gate, the most humble visitor was sure of a welcome. Out of that modest house the troubled came comforted, the fallen came uplifted, the noble came inspired. My explorations of Dr. Hale's house might not have brought me to the gables, but for my friend's daughter, the artist, who had a studio at the top of the house. She asked me one day if I would sit for a portrait, and I consented with the greatest alacrity. It would be an interesting experience, and interesting experiences were the bread of life to me. I agreed to come every Saturday morning, and felt that something was going to happen to Dover Street. When I came home from my talk with Miss Hale, I studied myself long in the blotched looking-glass. I saw just what I expected. My face was too thin, my nose too large, my complexion too dull. My hair, which was curly enough, was too short to be described as luxurious tresses, and the color was neither brown nor black. My hands were neither white nor velvety. The fingers ended decidedly, instead of tapering off like rosy dreams. I was disgusted with my wrists. They showed too far below the tight sleeves of my dress of the year before last, and they looked consumptive. No, it was not for my beauty that Miss Hale wanted to paint me. It was because I was a girl, a person, a piece of creation. I understood perfectly. If I could write an interesting composition about a broom, why should not an artist be able to make an interesting picture of me? I had done it with the broom, and the milk wagon, and the rain spout. It was not what a thing was that made it interesting, but what I was able to draw out of it. It was exciting to speculate as to what Miss Hale was going to draw out of me. The first sitting was indeed exciting. There was hardly any sitting to it. We did nothing but move around in the studio, and move the easel around, and try on ever so many backgrounds, and ever so many poses. In the end, of course, we left everything just as it had been at the start, because Miss Hale had had the right idea from the beginning. But I understood that a preliminary tempest in the studio was the proper way to test that idea. I was surprised to find that I should not be obliged to hold my breath, and should be allowed to wink all I wanted. Posing was just sitting with my hands in my lap, and enjoying the most interesting conversation with the artist. We hit upon such out-of-the-way topics. Once, I remember, we talked about the marriage laws of different states. I had a glorious time, and I believe Miss Hale did too. I watched the progress of the portrait with utter lack of comprehension, and with perfect faith in the ultimate result. The morning flew so fast that I could have sat right on into the afternoon without tiring. Once or twice I stayed to lunch, and sat opposite the artist's mother at table. It was like sitting face to face with Martha Washington, I thought. Everything was wonderful in that wonderful old house. One big thing disturbed my enjoyment of those Saturday mornings. It was a small thing, hardly as big as a pen-wiper. It was a silver coin which Miss Hale gave me regularly when I was going. I knew that models were paid for sitting, but I was not a professional model. When people sat for their portraits, they usually paid the artist, instead of the artist paying them. Of course, I had not ordered this portrait, but I had such a good time sitting that it did not seem to me I could be earning money. But what troubled me was not the suspicion that I did not earn the money, but that I did not know what was in my friend's mind when she gave it to me. 
Was it possible that Miss Hale had asked me to sit on purpose to be able to pay me, so that I could help pay the rent? Everybody knew about the rent sooner or later, because I was always asking my friends what a girl could do to make a landlady happy. Very possibly Miss Hale had my landlady in mind when she asked me to pose. I might have asked her. I dearly loved explanations, which cleared up hidden motives. But her answer would not have made any real difference. I should have accepted the money just the same. Miss Hale was not a stranger, like Mr. Strong when he offered me a quarter. She knew me, she believed in my cause, and she wanted to contribute to it. Thus I, in my hair-splitting analysis of persons and motives, while the portrait went steadily on. It was Miss Hale who first found a use for our superfluous baby. She came to Dover Street several times to study our tiny Celia, in swaddling clothes improvised by my mother, after the fashion of the old country. Miss Hale wanted a baby for a picture of the nativity, which she was doing for her father's church. And of all the babies in Boston, our Celia, our little Jewish Celia, was posing for the Christ child. It does not matter in this connection that the infant that lies in the lantern light, brooded over by the mother's divine sorrow of love, in the beautiful altarpiece in Dr. Hale's church, was not actually painted from my mother's baby in the end. The point is that my mother, in less than half a dozen years of America, had so far shaken off her ancient superstitions that she feared no evil consequence from letting her child pose for a Christian picture. A busy life I led on Dover Street, a happy, busy life. When I was not reciting lessons, nor writing midnight poetry, nor selling papers, nor posing, nor studying sociology, nor pickling bugs, nor interviewing statesmen, nor running away from home, I made long entries in my journal, or wrote forty-page letters to my friend. It was a happy thing that poor Mrs. Hutch did not know what sums I spent for stationery and postage stamps. She would have gone into consumption, I do believe, from inexpressible indignation. And she would have been in the right, to be indignant, not to go into consumption. I admit it, she would have been justified, from her point of view. From my point of view, I was also in the right. Of course I was. To make friends among the great was an important part of my education, and was not to be accomplished without a liberal expenditure of paper and postage stamps. If Mrs. Hutch had not repulsed my offer of confidences, I could have shown her long letters written to me by people whose mere signature was prized by autograph hunters. It is true that I could not turn those letters directly into rent money, or if I could, I would not, but indirectly my interesting letters did pay a week's rent now and then. Through the influence of my friends, my father sometimes found work that he could not have got in any other way. These practical results of my costly pursuit of friendships might have given Mrs. Hutch confidence in my ultimate solvency, had she not remained obstinately deaf to my plea for time, her heart being set on direct, immediate, convertible cash payment. That was very narrow-minded, even though I say it who should not. The grocer on Harrison Avenue, who supplied our table, could have taught her to take a more liberal view. We were all anxious to teach her, if she only would have listened. Here was this poor grocer, conducting his business on the same perilous credit system which had driven my father out of Chelsea and Wheeler Street, supplying us with tea and sugar and strong butter, milk freely splashed from rusty cans, potent yeast and bananas done to a turn, with everything, in short, that keeps a poor man's family hearty in spite of what they eat and all of this for the consideration of part-payment, with the faintest prospect of a future settlement in full. Mr. Rosenblum had an intimate knowledge of the financial situation of every family that traded with him, from the gossip of his customers around his herring-barrel. He knew without asking that my father had no regular employment, 
and that consequently it was risky to give us credit. Nevertheless, he gave us credit by the week, by the month, accepted partial payments with thanks, and let the balance stand by the year. We owed him as much as the landlady, I suppose, every time he balanced our account. But he never complained. Nay, he even insisted on my mother's taking almonds and raisins for a cake for the holidays. He knew, as well as Mrs. Hutch, that my father kept a daughter at school, who was of age to be put to work. But so far was he from reproaching him for it, that he detained my father by the half-hour, inquiring about my progress and discussing my future. He knew very well, did the poor grocer, who it was that burned so much oil in my family. But when I came in to have my kerosene can filled, he did not fall upon me with harsh words of flame. Instead, he wanted to hear about my latest triumph at school, and about the great people who wrote me letters and even came to see me. And he called his wife from the kitchen behind the store to come and hear of these grand doings. Mrs. Rosenblum, who could not sign her name, came out in her faded calico wrapper, and stood with her hands folded under her apron, shy and respectful before the embryo scholar, and she nodded her head sideways in approval, drinking in with envious pleasure her husband's Yiddish version of my tale. If her black-eyed Goldie happened to be playing jackstones on the curb, Mrs. Rosenblum pulled her into the store to hear what distinction Mr. Anton's daughter had won at school, bidding her take example from Mary, if she would also go far in education. Here you, Goldie? She has the best marks in everything, Goldie, all the time. She is only five years in the country, and she'll be in college soon. She beats them all in school, Goldie. Her father says she beats them all. She studies all the time, all night, and she writes. It is a pleasure to hear. She writes in the paper, Goldie. You ought to hear Mr. Anton read what she writes in the paper. Long pieces. You don't understand what he reads, Ma, Goldie interrupted mischievously, and I want to laugh, but I refrain. Mr. Rosenblum does not fill my can. I am forced to stand and hear myself eulogized. Not understand? Of course I don't understand. How should I understand? I was not sent to school to learn. Of course I don't understand. But you don't understand, Goldie, and that's a shame. If you would put your mind on it and study hard, like Mary Anton, you would also stand high, and you would go to high school and be somebody. Would you send me to high school, Pa? Goldie asks, to test her mother's promises. Would you really? Sure as I am a Jew, Mr. Rosenblum promptly replies, a look of aspiration in his deep eyes. Only show yourself worthy, Goldie, and I'll keep you in school till you get to something. In America, everybody can get to something, if he only wants to. I would even send you farther than high school. To be a teacher, maybe. Why not? In America, everything is possible. But you have to work hard, Goldie, like Mary Anton. Study hard. Put your mind on it. Oh, I know it, Pa, Goldie exclaims, her momentary enthusiasm extinguished at the thought of long lessons indefinitely prolonged. Goldie was a restless little thing who could not sit long over her geography book. She wriggled out of her mother's grasp now and made for the door, throwing a backhand as she went, without losing a single jackstone. I hate long lessons, she said. When I graduate summer school next year, I'm going to work in Jordan Marsh's big store and get three dollars a week and have lots of fun with the girls. I can't write pieces in the paper anyhow. Becky, Becky Hervich, where are you going? Wait a minute, I'll go along. And she was off, leaving her ambitious parents to shake their heads over her flightiness. Mr. Rosenblum gave me my oil. If he had had postage stamps in stock, he would have given me all I needed, and felt proud to think that he was assisting in my important correspondences. 
and he was a poor man, and had a large family, and many customers who paid as irregularly as we. He ran the risk of ruin, of course, but he did not scold, not us at any rate, for he understood. He was himself an immigrant Jew of the type that values education, and sets a great price on the higher development of the child. He would have done in my father's place just what my father was doing, borrow, beg, go without, run in debt, anything to secure for a promising child the fulfillment of the promise. That is what America was for. The land of opportunity it was, but opportunities must be used, must be grasped, held, squeezed dry. To keep a child of working age in school was to invest the meager present for the sake of the opulent future. If there was but one child in a family of twelve who promised to achieve an intellectual career, the other eleven, and father and mother, and neighbors must devote themselves to that one child's welfare, and feed and clothe and cheer it on, and be rewarded in the end by hearing its name mentioned with the names of the great. So the poor grocer helped to keep me in school, for I do not know how many years. And this is one of the things that is done on Harrison Avenue, by the people who pitch rubbish through their windows. Let the city fathers strike the balance." Of course, this is wretched economics. If I had a son who wanted to go into the grocery business, I should take care that he was well grounded in the principles of sound bookkeeping and prudence. But I should not fail to tell him the story of the Harrison Avenue grocer, hoping that he would puzzle out the moral. Mr. Rosenblum himself would be astonished to hear that anyone was drawing morals from his manner of conducting his little store. And yet it is from men like him that I learn the true values of things. The grocer weighed me out a quarter of a pound of butter, and when the scales were even, he threw in another scrap. Nah, he said, smiling across the counter, you can carry that much around the corner. Plainly, he was showing me that if I have not as many houses as my neighbor, that should not prevent me from cultivating as many graces. If I made some shamefaced reference to the unpaid balance, Mr. Rosenblum replied, I guess you're not thinking of running away from Boston yet. You haven't finished turning the libraries inside out, have you? In this way, he reminded me that there were things more important than conventional respectability. The world belongs to those who can use it to the best advantage, the grocer seemed to argue, and I found that I had the courage to test this philosophy. From my little room on Dover Street, I reached out for the world, and the world came to me. Through books, through the conversation of noble men and women, through communion with the stars in the depth of night, I entered into every noble chamber of the palace of life. I employed no charm to win admittance. The doors opened to me because I had a right to be within. My patent of nobility was the longing for the abundance of life with which I was endowed at birth, and from the time I could toddle unaided, I had been gathering into my hand everything that was fine in the world around me. Given health and standing room, I should have worked out my salvation even on a desert island. Being set down in the Garden of America, where opportunity waits on ambition, I was bound to make my days a triumphal march toward my goal. The most unfriendly witness of my life will not venture to deny that I have been successful, for aside from subordinate desires for greatness or wealth or specific achievement, my chief ambition in life has been to live, and I have lived. A glowing life has been mine, and the fires that blazed highest in all my days were kindled on Dover Street. I have never had a dull hour in my life. I have never had a livelier time than in the slums. In all my troubles I was thrilled through and through, with a prophetic sense of how they were to end. A halo of romance floated before every tomorrow. The wings of future adventures rustled in the dead of night. 
Nothing could be quite common that touched my life, because I had a power for attracting uncommon things. And when my noblest dreams shall have been realized, I shall meet with nothing finer, nothing more remote from the commonplace, than some of the things that came into my life on Dover Street. Friends came to me bearing noble gifts of service, inspiration, and love. There came one, to talk with whom was to double the volume of life. She left roses on my pillow when I lay ill, and in my heart she planted a longing for greatness that I have yet to satisfy. Another came whose soul was steeped in sunshine, whose eyes saw through every pretense, whose lips mocked nothing holy. And one came who carried the golden key that unlocked the last secret chamber of life for me. Friends came trooping from everywhere, and some were poor and some were rich, but all were devoted and true, and they left no niche in my heart unfilled and no want unsatisfied. To be alive in America, I found out long ago, is to ride on the central current of the river of modern life, and to have a conscious purpose is to hold the rudder that steers the ship of fate. I was alive to my fingertips back there on Dover Street, and all my girlish purposes served one main purpose. It would have been amazing if I had stuck in the mire of the slum. By every law of my nature, I was bound to soar above it, to attain the fairer places that wait for every emancipated immigrant. A characteristic thing about the aspiring immigrant is the fact that he is not content to progress alone. Solitary success is imperfect success in his eyes. He must take his family with him as he rises. So when I refused to be adopted by a rich old man, and clung to my family in the slums, I was only following the rule. And I can tell it without boasting, because it is no more to my credit than that I wake refreshed after a night's sleep. This suggests to me a summary of my virtues, through the exercise of which I may be said to have attracted my good fortune. I find that I have always given nature a chance, I have used my opportunities, and have practiced self expression. So much my enemies will grant me. More than this, my friends cannot claim for me. In the Dover Street days, I did not philosophize about my private character. Nor about the immigrant and his ways. I lived the life, and the moral took care of itself. And after Dover Street came Apple Pie Alley, Letterbox Lane, and other evil corners of the slums of Boston, till it must have looked to our neighbors as if we meant to go on forever exploring the underworld. But we found a short cut, we found a short cut, and the route we took from the tenements of the stifling alleys to a darling cottage of our own. Where the sun shines in at every window, and the green grass runs up to our very doorstep, was surveyed by the Pilgrim Fathers, who transcribed their field notes on a very fine parchment, and called it the Constitution of the United States. It was good to get out of Dover Street. It was better for the growing children, better for my weary parents, better for all of us, as the clean grass is better than the dusty pavement. But I must never forget. That I came away from Dover Street with my hands full of riches. I must not fail to testify that in America a child of the slums owns the land and all that is good in it. All the beautiful things I saw belonged to me if I wanted to use them. All the beautiful things I desired approached me. I did not need to seek my kingdom. I had only to be worthy, and it came to me, even on Dover Street. Everything that was ever to happen to me in the future had its germ or impulse in the conditions of my life on Dover Street. My friendships, my advantages and disadvantages, my gifts, my habits, my ambitions, these were the materials out of which I built my after life in the open workshop of America. My days in the slums were pregnant with possibilities. It only needed the ripeness of events to make them fruit forth in realities. 
steadily as I worked to win America, America advanced to lie at my feet. I was an heir on Dover Street, awaiting maturity. I was a princess, waiting to be led to the throne. End of chapter 19